I'd like you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians. If you ask me what my favorite book in the Bible is, it normally depends on what I happen to be studying at the time. Most recently it was Jude, and before that it was Nehemiah, and before that it was Luke. But if you really press me to make a decision on what would be my favorite book in the entire Bible, I would have to say it's Ephesians. And I am joined by good company in that uh, appraisal of it by men such as John Calvin. Armitage Robinson called it the crown of Paul's writings. Samuel Taylor Coolridge assessed it as the divinest composition of man. William Barclay referred to it as the queen of the epistles. And I love the way John Mackey summed up Ephesians. He said, it is doctrine set to music. And as we said last time, many others have called it the Christian's bank book because it describes all the riches that are ours in Christ. Chapters 1 to 3 tell us what they are, and chapters 4 to 6 tell us how to spend them. And in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul, in an extremely long sentence, begins to list some of the riches that we have. And as we go through it together, I would like to point out 10 of these riches, 10 deposits that God has made in our bank account. The first is in verse 3. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, a spiritual blessing is a blessing that the Spirit of God gives, and Paul tells us that we have them all. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing that the Spirit of God can give. And we talked about that last time, but let me touch on one point before we move on, and that is where these spiritual blessings are found. The end of verse 3 says, they are in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, what does that tell us? Well, I think it tells us a couple things. Number one, it tells us that these blessings are for those who are in Christ. And that's the most often repeated phrase in the book of Ephesians. 27 times he says, we are in Christ. If you are in Christ, then all these spiritual blessings are yours. If you are not in Christ, then your bank book is empty. If you are not in Christ, then your spiritual cupboard is bare. If you are not in Christ, then you are spiritually in the red. Now, what's it mean to be in Christ? Well, you know, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 tells us that we are all in Adam. So you are in someone. You are either in Adam or in Christ. What's it mean to be in Adam? Well, to be in Adam means that when Adam sinned in the garden, he was our representative. We were, in essence, in his loins. And when he sinned, we sinned. And we are born into the consequences of that. We are born with a sin nature. We are born spiritually dead. We are born owing a debt we can never pay. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus came as the last Adam. He is our new representative. And when you repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, not only does he come into you, but you come into him. So that Romans chapter 6 says that when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. And when he rose, you rose. 
And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says that he has sat down in the heavenly places, and guess what? You have sat down with him. And so all of these blessings that Christ has are ours if we are in Christ. But then there's a second thing here, and that is that these blessings are in the heavenly places. Or literally, they are in the heavenlies. Now, where are the heavenlies? You say, well, that's heaven. Well, no, not exactly. It includes heaven, but it includes more than that. This is a phrase that Paul uses five times in this letter. And if we look at the way he uses it, we can get a definition of it. Here in chapter 1, verse 3, he says our spiritual blessings are there. In verse 20 of chapter 1, he says that Christ is seated there. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says that we are seated there. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says the angels are there. And then in chapter 6, in verse 12, he makes an interesting statement about it, and I want you to notice that with me. Chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, where? In the heavenly places. Wicked forces, evil forces, demonic forces are in the heavenlies. And so the heavenlies is, a, is the Christian's battlefield. And so let me suggest to you a definition of this phrase, the heavenlies. It's not pie in the sky by and by. It's not something that I have no access to because that is where I do battle in this world and that's where my resources are for living in this world. So how would I define the heavenlies? The heavenlies is the realm of invisible reality. It encompasses those things that are true about this world but that I can't yet see or touch. Paul defined it that way in, in 2 Corinthians 4.18. He said, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 6 about Elisha and his servant? One day, one day they were surrounded by the armies of the Syrians. And the servant looked out and he saw chariots and the whole army surrounding them. And he got frightened. And so he turned to Elisha and he said, look, it's hopeless. What are we going to do? And Elisha said to him, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prayed a simple prayer. He said, Lord, open his eyes. And the eyes of that servant were opened, and he saw fiery chariots covering the mountain, manned by hundreds of thousands of angels. He got a glimpse at what is true but unseen. He got a glimpse into the heavenlies. You know, when we think about it, the most important things in life are not visible. The most important things in life are those things that we do not yet see. And so the issue for us as believers is to experience our blessings by tuning into the heavenlies, that real yet unseen realm. In fact, that's why if you notice chapter 1 and verse 18... After listing these riches down in verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul prays that the eyes of our understanding may be opened so that we'll understand how rich we are. 
See, I have to open my eyes to that spiritual realm so that I'm not just looking at flesh and blood. I'm looking at spiritual realities. I'm not just looking at the temporal. I'm looking at the eternal. I'm not just looking at the earthlies. I'm looking at the heavenlies. The heavenlies is kind of like cable TV. Out where we live, we don't get cable TV. So we only get the basic channels, and sometimes they don't come in very good. Some Christians are like that when it comes to spiritual realities. They're always moving the rabbit ears just to get the basics. Non-Christians don't even have a TV. But you see, God has a whole spiritual realm that He wants us to tune into. Not only so we can understand what those things are, but so that we can experience them in our lives. And so He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. They're in Christ and they're in the heavenlies. And we as Christians need to tune in to the reality of those blessings that God has for us because it affects the battle that we're experiencing on this earth. Second deposit he makes in our bank book is in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before you existed and before there was a planet for you to exist upon, God chose you. Now that's a pretty mind-boggling thought. And most of us struggle with that, not just because we can't understand it, but because some of us don't believe it. Now, I'm not going to pretend this morning that I'm going to explain this to you. But I would like to make three observations about this. Number one, this is not an isolated teaching. This is not a teaching where I can just go to one or two passages and find it and dig it out. This is a... This is a teaching that you see throughout Scripture. And just to give you a flavor for that, look over at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Paul is preaching on this occasion to the Jews, and then he turns to the Gentiles, and here's the comment made in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this... They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, we wouldn't need that phrase to understand what's going on here in Acts, but here it is interjected, this idea of the sovereignty of God, that he chose these people beforehand. Look further on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. For this reason, Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. And then one other verse in Revelation 17 
verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. This is not an isolated teaching. You were chosen, if you're a believer, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Second observation I'd like to make. This is not a popular teaching. And what I mean by that is, it is not easy to digest. If you hear someone explain this subject to you and it makes logical sense to you, then you can be sure that they haven't told you the whole truth. Because the only way you'll know that you're really understanding this topic is when your response to it is, naturally, that's not fair. Okay? Let me show you that. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, Paul is laying out this teaching using illustrations from the Old Testament. And he sums it up in verse 18. He says, So then God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. God does whatever he wants to. He shows mercy on some, he hardens some. Now, what's the response to that? Verse 19, Paul says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? What's the question Paul anticipates? That's not fair. If God is sovereign, then how does he hold man responsible? That's not fair. And what's interesting to me is that Paul doesn't say, wait a minute, you misunderstood me. Let me explain it to you. Look what Paul says, verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Well, who are you to question God? Does the clay get to question the potter? No. He's in charge, and he is sovereign. And so, as you deal with this subject, naturally, the question that's going to come up is, the argument that's going to come out of you naturally is, that's not fair. Now, I know what you're saying this morning. You're saying, just between me and you, without bringing God into it, that's not fair. Well, let me help you with that a little bit. Let me give you two things that help me with this. Number one, if you want what's fair, then we should all pay the consequences for our sin. If you want what's fa- Before you say that's not fair, if you want what's fair, we have sinned, the wages of sin is death, we deserve hell forever. You see, when you're talking about what's not fair, it's not fair that anybody should go to heaven. That's what's not fair. And before we start talking about what's fair, we need to take a look at the fact that we can be thankful that God has not dealt with us in fairness. God has dealt with us in grace. Second thing that helps me on this is that if God had not chosen some and called some then no one 
would have come. Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 tells us there is none who seeks for God. In our sinful situation, enemies of God rebelling against God, there is nothing in us that seeks after Him. And that's why Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's nothing in me that seeks God. And so God reaches out and draws me. And if God had not chosen me and drawn me and wooed me to himself, I never would have come. Suppose it was a real hot day. And I decided to be real nice, and so I went out and I bought a Coke for everybody. And I came in here and I put 300 Cokes up here on the stage. And I said, whosoever will may have a Coke. And some of you said, I like Pepsi. I don't like that fizzy stuff. I'm not really thirsty. And so you all got up and you all went out to the lobby. And I'm left in here with my 300 Cokes. Let's say I go out into the lobby and I call 50 of you over to me individually. And I say, let me tell you something about Coke. It's the real thing. (laughs) And it's ice cold. And it's so satisfying. And you begin to salivate. And you come back in here and you get a Coke. Now let me ask you, can anybody complain if they didn't get a Coke? No. Because I offered them to everybody. And they're still up here if you want one. But on the other hand, can anybody boast if they got one? No. Because you never would have gotten one if you hadn't been called back. And that's the work of God. Third observation. This is, an, this is not a comprehensible teaching. Don't expect that you can understand this because you can't. And I think that's evident from Scripture. Scripture in nowhere, nowhere in Scripture does it ever try to explain this doctrine. It just presents it as a statement over and over and over again. You know why? Because we can't understand it. It is the activity of an infinite God, and we have a finite mind, and not only is our mind finite, but it has been twisted by sin. But having said that, let me say this. Don't let the fact that you can't understand it keep you from believing it. Can anybody here explain to me how Jesus is fully God and fully man in the same person? No. But we believe it. Can anybody here explain to me how God is three persons and one God? No. But we believe it. Can anybody explain to me how human authors wrote this book and yet it is in every word God's? No. But we believe it. And in the same way, God tells us that He is sovereign, that He chose us before the foundation of the world, and yet we have the responsibility to respond to the gospel in faith. How do I put that together? I can't. I can't explain it. But I still believe it. It is incomprehensible. But you know what? Even though I can't understand it, I can still get excited about it. 
And there are two things that make me real excited about this teaching. Number one is the idea of security. Some people take all the, all the phrases about the sovereignty of God and they kind of throw them out and they present the gospel as if it's Jesus, kind of like a train coming by and, and you've got to jump on and hang on for dear eternal life until you get there. This passage tells me that I was chosen before the world was ever created. Wow. And chapter 2, verse 7 tells me in the ages to come, God is going to show His grace toward me. We usually have this little temporal view of what's going on. God's letting us in on the big picture, the eternal picture, and He's saying, I chose you before the world was made, and I got plans for you in eternity future. And we realize, hey, that's secure. If my salvation depended on me, I'd be real nervous because I know I would fail. But this is showing me that God has a hand in that, and His plans from eternity past into eternity future will be fulfilled. And I don't know how that ministers to your spirit, but that ministers to me with a sense of security in what God is doing. Secondly, it speaks to me about identity. It tells me that I'm not some Johnny-come-lately to this program. I didn't accidentally get saved and fall into the church and find myself here. God had a plan. You know, a lot of people today are seeking self-worth, self-esteem, trying to find value for themselves. That's a big topic today. You can go in bookstores and you can read all about how to love yourself and how to assert yourself and how to get to the top and how to be somebody. And, and unfortunately, you find those same books in the Christian bookstore. Uh, psychology with a few verses mingled in, and that's what it is. I was in the bookstore not too long ago, and I saw a book called Love Yourself. That's the last thing I need to read. But we're talking a lot about worth and value and everybody's trying to find it and people are saying, well, if I just look like Sylvester Stallone or Brad Pitts or Madonna, I'll be somebody. Or if I just dress like certain people, if I wear designer clothes and dress for success, I'll be somebody. Or maybe you think value comes from what you do. If I can just make all conference, if I can just make the honor roll, if I can just get that promotion... I'll have value. There are other people today who try to find value through their roots. They go back to their family roots and they try to find somebody in their family who was somebody and then they borrow their somebodiness. When I was in the ninth grade, they had me do a family tree. I was pretty disappointed. <laughs> the biggest name in our family was a pirate. I mean, I thought, See, to have self-worth, you don't need to study psychology and you don't need to win any awards and you don't need to go back to your roots. To have a sense of worth and a sense of significance, you simply need to understand who you are in Jesus Christ. And when I understand that before the world was ever made, He chose me, and he carried out his eternal plan with me in mind, then that tells me that I have significance because I matter to God. Now, I don't understand that because I know me real well. And I don't understand that because I know some of you real well. And I will spend eternity saying, why me? 
But that gives me significance. I don't, have to, I don't understand the whole deal of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, and I can't put it together in my mind. But I can still get excited about the fact that it shows me significance. You want to know how important you are to God? His whole plan of eternity was to draw you to Himself forever. Wow. Third deposit in our spiritual bank account is the end of verse 4 that we should be holy and blameless before Him. You say, I think this is where the plan broke down. I'm a Christian, I love the Lord, but I'm certainly not holy and I'm certainly not blameless. Well, let me tell you something. Yes, you are. Because you see, Paul here is talking about your position. He's not talking about your practice. And we have to understand those two concepts to understand the book of Ephesians because in chapter 2, he's going to tell us positionally, you're already seated in the heavenlies in Christ. Practically, you're walking in this world. We have to understand our position before God and our practice before men. Here he's talking about our position and he says positionally, you are holy and blameless before God. Why is that? Well, it's because in verse 4, he chose us in him. It's because I am in Christ. And because I am in Christ, I have His righteousness put to my account. I stand before God in Christ, and He sees me with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, I can say this to you this morning. If you are a Christian, you are just as holy as Jesus Christ. You are just as blameless as Jesus Christ because you are in Him. Listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God took the sin off of me and he put it on Christ. And he took the righteousness off of Christ and he put it on me. So that I am positionally before God just as righteous as Christ is. Mark it down. You are holy and blameless before God. Our practice may fall short, our practice will fall short, but our position never will because we're in Him. And that's one of the exciting things about the Christian life because the Christian life is not becoming somebody you're not. It's becoming somebody you already are. God has already made you holy and blameless, so it's becoming who you are. It's living out your position and your practice on this earth. Fourth deposit God has made in our spiritual bank account is in verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons. I love that. God didn't say, you can be servants in my kingdom, you can be subjects, you can be slaves. That would have been good considering where we came from. And God doesn't even say, you can be my friends. God says, you're my sons. Wow. We are not guests in God's home. We are children. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8.15 that we can call him Abba Father. Abba, the Aramaic word for Dada. Papa. That's what we can call him because that's the relationship we now have. Now, why does he use the term adoption? Well, because adoption is when you get the position of a son, but you don't naturally have it. You get a position that you don't naturally have. You are placed into the body, and that's the case with us because we were born into this world in Adam. 
We were in the Adams family. And John chapter 8, verse 44 says that Satan was our father. So God has taken us out of that family, and he has adopted us into his family. Now, if you're here this morning and you're adopted or you have adopted children, you know that you can love that child as much as if it were your very own. I love my two sons as much as if they were my very own. But there's one thing I can't give them. I can't give them my nature. I can't give them my heredity. So they don't have my long legs and they're not going to have my bald head. You see, that's where it differs with God. Because God has adopted us into his family, but guess what? Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says he has given us his spirit. And 2 Peter 1.4 says we have become partakers of the divine nature. God has adopted us, but he's also given us his nature and his spirit. And that's why in chapter 5 and verse 1, when Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children, that's something we can do because he's already given us the capacity by placing his nature inside of us. Do you ever wonder why God, who knew what was going to happen ahead of time, created us even though he knew we were going to fall into sin? you ever wrestle with that kind of question? I think one of the answers is right here. Because I think that God destined us for a higher dignity than creation could give. He had a plan for us that he wanted to adopt us to make us sons and daughters in his family. And that's an exciting blessing that he has given us. Now, why did God bless us with every spiritual blessing and choose us and make us holy and blameless and adopt us as sons? Well, I see four reasons for that intertwined in these verses. First of all is his love. Look at the end of verse 4. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Why did God do it? He did it because he loved us. That's pretty humbling. And that kind of tempers my sense of identity. Because, you see, God didn't look down through time and see me and say, Wow, look at that guy. Pretty impressive qualities in him. He's quite a loving fellow. I'm going to have to have him in my family. No. God didn't do that. See, it wasn't based on anything in me. It was no merit in me. It was based on who God is. God is love, and he lovingly chose me. You see, the purpose is, when you look back at at verse 4, it says he chose us in order to make us holy and blameless, which tells us what? We weren't. We were unholy, and we were blemished. And out of love, he took us anyway as his enemies, and he made us his children. It's the love of God. Same reason why he chose Israel in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7 says, The Lord did not choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were fewer of all the peoples. But he chose you because the Lord loved you. That's it. Why? His love. Second reason is his pleasure. Look at the end of verse 5. 
He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. That phrase, kind intention, is good pleasure. The good pleasure of his will. A lot of times we talk about God's will and we think that he's very formal. He sits in an office somewhere. and In past time, he made some executive decisions. This says the good pleasure of his will. It made him happy to do it. And oftentimes we don't notice that about God the Father. We see it in Christ because it says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? Bringing many sons to salvation. But you see, the Father is joyful as well. It brought him joy to bless us in these ways. It reminds me of Luke chapter 12 and verse 32 when Jesus said to his disciples, Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. It's a joyful thing. And so, not only is it based in His love, it's based in His joy. He loved to do it, and He rejoiced in doing it for us. Third reason, His grace, verse 6. It says, it's to the praise of the glory of His grace. You know, when the angels fell into sin, and they fell into sin long before we did, The Bible gives us no indication that God provided any redemption for them. In fact, the only thing we know that God did when they sinned is recorded in Matthew 25, 41. It says, God prepared eternal fire for the devil and his angels. The angels fell into sin, and what did God do? He went out and he created hell as a permanent destiny for them. Now, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 7 says, We were created a little lower than the angels. So on the pecking order, we're down here, angels are here. Angels sin, they get hell. We sin, what do we expect? But what did God do? He showed His grace. He came to us who were helpless, ungodly, sinful, rebelling against God, and He sent His Son into this world to be sacrificed for us so that we might be holy and blameless before Him and adopted as sons. Wow. You'll never understand the grace of God either because it surpasses our understanding. But we can sure get excited about it too. The grace of God. His love, His joy, His grace. And then one other reason He gives here, and that is His glory. Verse 6 says, To the praise of the glory of His grace. Do you realize that prior to God's demonstration of grace toward us, God had never had an opportunity to show His grace before? So all the angels worshipped God, but they didn't worship Him on the basis of His grace. They had never seen that facet of God. They had never seen that attribute displayed. They understood his power, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, and all those things, but his grace had not been shown until we came along. And then God showered his grace upon us, and he showed a whole different aspect of himself, which explains to me another reason why God created us, even though he knew we would fall into sin, because he wanted to use us as a demonstration of his grace. And we are trophies to the grace of God. And that's why at the end of chapter 3, we read this statement in verse 21. It says, To him be the glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Two demonstrations of God's grace. One is through Christ, who is the Word expressing who the Father is, and the other is the church. We demonstrate the grace of God. And that's why chapter 3 and verse 10 tells us, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Do you realize that angels are watching us? You know what they're doing? They're scratching their heads. Look at those people. They sinned, they rebelled, they were enemies, they hated God, and what did He do? He gave His Son to die for them. He he poured His grace all over them. We are a demonstration of the grace of God, and because of that, not only will we be praising God forever, but also the angels will. They are learning from us a whole aspect of God that they had never seen before. We are a trophy of His grace. And so I guess the question in closing is, are they seeing the evidence of that in our lives? As they look on, are they seeing the evidence of grace in my life, that my position, holy and blameless before God, is becoming a reality in my life so that the fruit of grace is evident and so that they say, wow, what a God we have.